0: It may seem cliché, but there's a good reason Pauline Fromer recommends you start a visit to New York City with a view from the top of the Empire State Building.
1: But when you get up there, you suddenly understand how the city works. It's laid out before you like a living map.
0: For close-ups of the city, Katie Marin tells us how an elevated railroad trestle has become a popular destination for a stroll above traffic on the west side.
2: Walk the whole thing because it opened in three different sections. And it has three very distinctly different
0: moods. And guides from Germany help listeners with vacation plans and remind us of some big anniversaries they're marking this year.
3: This is the 200th anniversary of the birth of Karl Marx. Of course, it's 1618, 400 years ago that the horrible Thirty Years' War started. And 1918 is
0: when the First World War ended. Get expert advice for visiting New York and the inside scoop on Germany in the hour ahead. It's Travel with Rick Steves. It's the nation that's often called the engine at the heart of the European Union, and it's big enough to offer just about anything you could want in a classic European getaway. Tour guides from Berlin join us a little later in the hour to take your calls at 877-333-RIC as we make plans to visit Germany this year. But before flying out, what about including a stopover for a day in New York City? one of the backers of the city's High Line, that's the former elevated rail line to the meatpacking district, joins us in just a bit. She tells us how it's transformed the city's west side into more of a people-friendly destination. The High Line is now a favorite for viewing art and exotic greenery, catching some good views of the city and maybe a little sun, while stretching your legs a couple floors above all the traffic. But first, New York native Pauline Fromer joins us to recommend some of her favorite places where she sends people who only have a day to spare in the city. Pauline, so glad you could join us.
1: Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you.
0: Now, in the new edition of your book, Fromer's Easy Guide to New York City, you have a sidebar that lays out New York City in one day. Iconic New York City, it's called. I know, and, and you, right. you mentioned in the book, this is terrible if you only have one day, but that's the reality for a lot of people. They've got maybe a yeah. weekend or they're on a business trip or passing through and they've got a day. If you had a day in New York City, let's let's think about how you might spend it.
1: Well, if you only have a day, you want to do some of the iconic sites and you want to stay in one area. Well, actually, I I suggest two areas so that you don't waste time getting from place to place. So you start your day at the Empire State Building and you want to get there early to avoid the crowds. But when you get up there, you suddenly understand How the city works, it's laid out before you like a living map, Hmm. and it's absolutely beautiful. You can see the grid of New York City. You can see the bustle on the streets, and it's a wonderful bird's eye view. It's a wonderful way to start because then when you're down in the midst of all the chaos, yeah. you'll have a better understanding of why you're turning left and why you're turning right.
0: You know, we started off our recent family vacation to New York City with that same idea. Go straight early in the morning to the Empire State mm-hmm. Building and it was really user-friendly and it was just a, everything about it was a delight and as you said from that viewpoint, ah, it was just amazing. In your book, you say next to go to the New York Public Library.
1: The New York Public Library, one of the most beautiful examples of Beaux-Arts architecture in the country, and you can walk in front of the lions. They apparently only roar when a virgin walks in front, so you can test that (laughs) out. But inside are some gloriously beautiful exhibition spaces that are absolutely free. The curators there are really smart. They do very, very intriguing exhibitions. A recent one was on the History of children's books.
0: So there's always something going on for for tourists and locals alike, but I would imagine at the New York Public Library you almost feel like you're a a temporary local. And then from there you recommend uh, walking over to the Rockefeller Center.
1: Walk over to the Rockefeller Center, absolutely. It's one of the most beautiful planned developments anywhere in the world. Uh, Rockefeller basically kept New York working by creating this glorious space he hired Mm. tens of thousands of workmen architects artisans artists and created this harmonious art deco space Mm. which thrills even today and he did this at the height of the depression at one point i think something like 10 percent of the people who had a job in new york city were working to create rockefeller center
0: Now it's lunchtime, and Grand Central Station is nearby, and uh, you talk about an oyster bar there.
1: The oyster bar is a classic. It has the same tiling that you'll see on Ellis Island. It has this Mm. kind of cathedral-like ceiling, although low cathedral-like, as if you were right at the top. It's all curved arches. So you either go to the oyster bar or you go upstairs. Just recently, the man who was considered the best chef in the world... Opened a food court in Grand Central Station. He's from Scandinavia, so you have open face sandwiches that are more delicious and filled with dill than mm. anything you've ever tasted. And you get them for six or seven dollars. You have this totally gourmet experience oh, uh, for great. less than a ten. Now yeah, that's upstairs
0: it's in Grand Central Station?
1: That's upstairs. He owned Noma in Copenhagen, which was named the best uh, restaurant in the world. And now he has a food court and a restaurant right in Grand Central Station.
0: Now that you're um, tanked up there, what would you do in Grand Central Station? Is it just a chance to feel the energy of New York coming and going?
1: Well, you feel the energy and maybe you take a walking tour. You can actually get a free one Mm -hmm. by your smartphone and you find fun things like there's a a place called the Whispering Corner where you (laughs) stand on one side of the room and talk into the wall and somebody on the other side of the room can hear you. There's lots of little hidden nooks and crannies all filled with history at Grand Central Station.
0: This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Pauline Fromer, and her guide is Fromer's Easy Guide to New York City. We're reviewing what you would do in a iconic single day of sightseeing in New York City if you had the reality of, we've only got one day, what are we going to do? And you dedicate the entire afternoon on your proposed best day of New York to the Metropolitan Museum. That's pretty high priority. Yeah. What is it about the Metropolitan? That's so great.
1: Well, the Metropolitan is one of the world's greatest museums. It's the biggest in all of the Americas. It has incredible treasures, like a temple brought over intact from Egypt, paintings by Rembrandt and all of the other great masters, uh, Vermeer. You can spend days there. Mm. But I think it's best to approach a museum slowly. You're not going to get enough out of it if you just rush from place to place. I once talked to an art historian who also is a psychiatrist, and he said you should stand in front of an artwork for at least five minutes. And have a conversation with it. Let it work on you. And so that's why I'm suggesting a a full afternoon at the Mm -hmm. Metropolitan Museum because if you take any shorter time, you're just going to feel harried. It won't feel like a pleasure.
0: And then for the after dark time, you say head on over to Times Square.
1: Right. Everybody wants to see Times Square. It's kind of tawdry looking during the day, but at night when the lights are blazing, and those lights are blazing because everybody who owns a building that faces Times Square by law has to put a a vast number of lights on its façade. Uh, It's the only part of the city that is that illuminated. But when you're there with the crowds and the people in costume and all the Broadway theaters around, it really is exciting. It can't be beat. So
0: if you're going to do Times Square, you'd say save it for after dark because that's when it really is a spectacle.
1: You'll be disappointed, I think, if you see it during the day for the
0: first time. that makes sense. You
1: want to see it when the lights are glowing.
0: Pauline, that was the iconic New York City that we're talking about. Now let's splice in a little bit of see New York City like a local because that's something you stress in your book, and you talk about enjoying a sunset over Central Park from a roof garden.
1: And that roof garden is actually in a very touristy place, but tourists don't know about it. It's at the top of the Metropolitan Museum, which is open until 9 p.m. on Friday and Saturday nights. And it's actually a big pickup scene. Uh, A lot of people in New York go to meet one another there. But it's a wonderful time to see the Metropolitan because the crowds are gone. You can have a glass of wine. You can watch the sunset. You can go down, see some more art, go back up, have another glass of wine, It really is a wonderful hidden secret that Hmm. mostly New Yorkers know about, not visitors. Wow. You also talk
0: about riding the Roosevelt Island tram. How's that, uh, seeing New York like a local?
1: It's a tram that costs the same as a subway line. You go way up in the air and over to little Roosevelt Island, looking into people's apartments as you go, which is always fun. And then on Roosevelt Island is Four Freedoms Park, which is dedicated to Franklin Delano Roosevelt, which is this mm. very stark memorial. And it's probably one of the one, few places in Manhattan that is totally quiet. And you can see the city kind of at a slight distance, and yet all around you is only the sound of the wind. It's a, a very mm. odd but lovely experience. So
0: the Roosevelt Island tram, and you just use a subway ticket for it, and that's one of the things I like wherever I'm traveling, is to try to find a way to make a public transit route like a tour and it costs just the amount of a a bus ride and in your book you talk about uh, riding the International Express that's train number seven right through Queens and it laces together one ethnic neighborhood after another. Can you take us on a quick review of what you might see if you wanted to sort of celebrate the cultural diversity of New York City by uh using the train number 7 as your as your connector.
1: Yeah. Well, you need to get on and off the number 7 express because Queens was not built for these ethnic communities. So that the buildings you see will not reflect the diversity, but one out of every 4 New Yorkers was born abroad and you'll feel that as you wander into a a neighborhood that's filled with sari shops and curry joints and other Indian specialty shops and then you go to the next neighborhood and it's all Czech and mm. then the next neighborhood is all Greek and all of these people live together in harmony it's it's just wonderful
0: I love that you could spend the whole day going from Italy to China to Thailand to Czech Republic and celebrating the ethnic diversity
1: you need to bring your, your <laughs> uh, pants with the wide waist because you're going to do a lot <laughs> of, eating. of eating on this trip lots yeah. of
0: eating Pauline Fromer authors Fromer's Easy Guide to New York and includes many of her recommendations at Fromer's.com. Right now on Travel with Rick Steves, she's recommending the best of what her city has to offer, even if you only have one day to see the sights of New York. Finally, for Offbeat, you talk about a poetry slam.
1: Well, I'm not sure if they started in New York, but the Nyorican Poets Cafe is kind of the center for that here, and it's a center for that in the United States. People get up and share their written poetry, and it's people of all ages, all races, all religions, and it's astounding the amount of talent that gets up. And when you hear a poem, it's so different than reading one. Mm. Somehow the poetry is much more visceral and understandable and emotional to see the poet uh, recite it. I mean, in New York, you have this wealth of opportunities for nightlife. You you have so many different types of performing arts. But the spoken word is really strong here. Poetry slams and readings. Most everybody in the media knows if they want to get their ideas out, if they want to publicize a book, they do it in New York. So you can see big names at the 92nd Street Y or your local Barnes & Noble. I mean, it's really extraordinary the people who come out here to read their work. You know, this conversation,
0: Pauline, just reminds me of the importance of, frankly, being a good student. If you've got a chance to go to New York and you've just got a couple of days, you've got to do some preparation to know what your options are because there's a world of opera, alternatives and, and opportunities, and um, you describe them very well in your book. Pauline Fromer, the book is Frommer's Easy Guide to New York City. Thanks a lot, Pauline. Best wishes with your work and enjoying New York City at the same time. Thank
4: you. Ain't it wonderful First time I'll be free here in New York
0: City. One of New York's newest attractions provides a nice antidote to the overstimulation of Times Square. The chair of the Friends of the High Line tells us how you can mix a little relaxed people watching with the best of the city's west side. That's in just a New York minute right here on Travel with Rick Steves. Last time I was in New York City, I had a couple of free hours in my schedule, and I used it to enjoy a wonderful new dimension of the city by taking a stroll along the High Line Park. It started out as a long, elevated railroad platform that wraps around part of Manhattan's west side. The High Line has turned the space above the city's former meatpacking district into a favorite escape from the confines of small apartments and the bustle of the street. Katie Marin chairs the Friends of the High Line And she joins us now on Travel with Rick Steves to tell us more about the city's popular but unusual green space. Katie, thanks for joining us.
2: Thank you very much for having me. We often call it a park in the sky.
0: The park in the sky, what a beautiful concept. And what a practical thing, because, I mean, it was built, um, what, in the 19th century to just be uh, an industrial-age train line, wasn't it?
2: It was built in the 20th century, and it stopped being used about 1980. So it's amazing how recent it was still in operation.
0: So, describe the park in the sky. How long is it, and uh, whose idea was it to to turn this train line into a park? And and if we visit it today, what are we going to experience?
2: The High Line is just under one and a half miles long. It was founded by two (laughs) very inspired young men, Robert Hammond and Josh David. They didn't know each other, but they had heard that there was a community meeting to talk about knocking down the High Line. And the mayor at the time wanted to knock it down. They thought it was just a hazard, potentially dangerous. So they decided that they really wanted to save it. And over time, they quickly left their full-time jobs to go work to save the High Line. It took them quite a few years, several years, but it opened in 2009 to great fanfare, and it became immediately (laughs) much more popular than they could have ever expected.
0: You know, I had a couple hours of spare time and somebody said, you got to try out this, you know, elevated park, this park in the sky. It was just a delight. And and what a, it really fills a need in New York. Uh, You get a wonderful perspective on the city. Uh, It's lots of greenery. It's it's people just out with their dogs and out with their lovers and getting some exercise and and just enjoying the moment. I thought it was just one of the most delightful dimensions you could have in New York City.
2: I've heard that again and again. People adore it. And now I notice that it's, in the top five places people will go. And in fact, I think it's the top 10 Instagram places in the world. Is that right? So, and last year, uh, we had 7.7 7 million people, or visits.
0: 7.7 7 million people that used it? Locals and tourists alike, I would imagine. Exactly. What are your tips? You're on the, you're on the board to keep this thing going. What are your tips for a visitor? How, how can you best enjoy it? What, what's the access like? Uh, what are some special features that we should be aware of?
2: My first tip would be to walk the whole whole thing because it opened in three different sections and it has three very distinctly different moods. I would start at the bottom of the High Line, at Gansevoort Street.
0: Gansevoort Street, and then you're going to get up on this former train line and you're going to walk one and a half miles.
2: That's right. First you turn left and just see the absolute end of the High Line, which is a grove of birch trees. In fact, Hmm. we're figuring out what to do with them now because their roots are really outgrowing the soil that's available to them. And it's a beautiful spot where, in fact, a lot of people have gotten engaged. Hmm. Yeah. Then I would keep walking north, and you go through a rather old-fashioned industrial area of New York, the Meatpacking District. And there are a lot of old factories there. And you you feel it. You go through the Chelsea Passage, which is where Nabisco once had its factory. It's an interior space. In essence, a small tunnel, very small. And there we have lots of food vendors. We choose the food vendors very carefully to make sure their food is fantastic and fresh and in keeping with the mood of the High Line. So it's a great place to stop for a few minutes and take a break. Then you keep going and one really before that there's another fun area which is called the sun deck. And there's a water feature there too for hot, hot days. But there are chaises there along the side built in wood planks that are quite comfortable. And there are people there in the summer who look like they could be on a Caribbean island in their bathing suits. So you're going going to shorts. the beach.
0: You're going to the beach in and and the elevated going to the old industrial age train line. That's great.
2: Exactly.
0: So these are like uh, wooden uh, chase lounges.
2: Yeah, and uh, people stake out their lounge and they often stay there yeah. for the day. So then you walk through Chelsea Market Passage, and one area which is also very popular and fascinating, I think, the Tenth Avenue Square. It's sort of an amphitheater with steps and bleachers going down with this big, wide, open glass window overlooking 10th Avenue. So you're right above the cars, and you're looking at the cars. It's a great place for performances. It's a great place for some of our programs. It's a great place just to sit. And I've noticed again and again how many people like to sit there and look at 10th Avenue. As you go north, you go across some grasslands. And I've come to appreciate grasses in a way I never did before through the High Line. And I find them, in fact, very beautiful in the wintertime. After that, you end up in what we call the thicket, and the thicket is basically a miniature forest of dogwood trees, other trees, and you're just, it's just, you're surrounded by trees. And then you start walking, instead of the meatpacking district, you start walking through a residential area. You see charming streets to your right, which are old-fashioned Chelsea streets with old-fashioned townhouses. Some of them, in fact, still have gas lights in front of them. And you see very modern apartment buildings. There are a few apartments that are virtually on the same level as a High Line. And I don't know how people feel about Mm -hmm. having their living room being seen by those on the High Line, but I guess they get used to it and (laughs) like it. So you feel an intimacy there. And then you keep walking, and then suddenly you come up to 30th Street. And 30th Street is where the third section starts. And we call it an interim section because we did not do much to it other than create the path. And that sweeps around towards the Hudson River. So you're getting wide open views of the Hudson River on one side. And on the east side, you are watching the most amazing development go up. It's called Hudson Yards. I think it's the biggest development in the world. Buildings are sprouting up faster than you can believe. When I've been there, I am in awe of the amount of building, the amount of cranes going on, used. And in fact, they are building over railroad tracks. So when you stand on the westernmost side, you can watch the trains come and go. And in five years, you're not going to be able to see those trains come and go, Mm -hmm. because the foundation to these very large buildings is going to be built. So this fact, is all
0: one one and a half miles and you just climb a staircase at many different uh, locations along the way to get onto it. Is that right?
2: That's right. There are 11 locations.
0: Oh, wow. And it's basically just, uh, what was a train line that's not very wide and one and a half miles long and it sounds like it's landscaped and designed to be people-friendly and safe and what a triumph for the city of New York.
2: I think it is. And in fact, it's planted beautifully with all sorts of Exotic plants, unusual plants, over 100,000 species of plants. So people who love plants will go there. And as you go along, you'll feel a wholly different mood of plants.
0: Travel with Rick Steves is in the big city today as we learn about New York's High Line with Katie Marin from the board that funds and oversees the park. It's a refurbished elevated train line that winds through the former meatpacking district in Manhattan's west side and it's now a popular destination for both locals and visitors. Katie, you just gave us a wonderful tour of the High Line Park. It sounds like you don't need to worry about getting lost.
2: <laughs> You're with people all of the time.
0: You can't get lost. It's just one long, straight path, right?
2: It winds, it but winds. you can't get lost. No, there's no turning left or right, and there are always people there.
0: I like Industrial Age history, and this is sort of a remnant of the Industrial Age when you had uh, the need for a train line going through the meatpacking district, right? What was the the function of the train line originally?
2: To bring manufacturing, to bring goods, uh, food, back and forth. It wasn't a people train as much as it was for cargo.
0: So it it helped Manhattan function from an industrial point of view.
2: That's right. It did, it goes through buildings.
0: Is it lit at night, and is it considered safe by locals?
2: Oh, it's beautifully lit at night. Mm-hmm. I find the nighttime one of the loveliest times to be there.
0: It's interesting you mentioned there were actually cafes and, and little food kiosks along the way. Are these? It sounds like you you choose them carefully. Uh, does the profit made on those help support the the maintenance of the park?
2: Modestly, we don't ra- raise a lot of money through them. Yes, we do raise some money, and in fact, there's a restaurant right below the High Line where we also raise money. But most of the money is raised from individuals, companies, foundations by us every year.
0: People who appreciate it. And is it is it generally um, considered a, a good thing by locals who live in that neighborhood? Are they glad it's there? Does it give them access to a park? Or is it seen more as an intrusion and something that brings in too many tourists?
2: Definitely tourists come, but they're coming for a lot of reasons in that area. And certainly Hudson Yards is going to bring them in. Generally, I would say locals do very much appreciate it. And there are no parks in the area, so they need a park.
0: Now, I was impressed by reading your website about how you're, you're sort of committed to it being green and sustainable. How does that work?
2: We have a lot of gardeners who all have their various sections, and we maintain it to the highest possible standard. We have our mission statement, and we have the principles on which we stand, and that's first and foremost.
0: You know, there's an interesting park that sounds very, very similar in Paris, the Promenade Plantée. And it's the same sort of thing. It's an old uh, elevated train line that was about to be torn down, and they decided to make it into a park. Was that an an inspiration for the New York City Park?
2: It was. Once uh, Robert and Josh decided to do this, they went there, and they learned from that. But I have been there as well, and that park is not nearly as populated. It has not caught on the way the High Line has.
0: And is it your hope that other cities will be inspired by the High Line in the United States to bring green spaces to former industrial areas?
2: They are. In fact, we have a network now of about 15 of them which who come together every quarter to share ideas. We decided to pull that together because there are a lot of cities where similar ideas are taking
0: hold. I think that's a great uh, secondary mission along with making sure that your park is well managed and sustainable and so on. Our guest on Travel with Rick Steves is Katie Marin. She chairs the Friends of the High Line, which oversees the elevated park that turned a former freight line into a public green space. There's more about the park at thehighline.org. Katie's also written the books City Parks and City Squares. Her goal? To champion urban green spaces by highlighting some of the world's best examples. Pam joins us on the line at 877-333-7425 from Atlantic Beach in Florida. Pam, have you been to New York?
5: Yes. I just wanted to say that I have walked the High Line twice, once in the spring and once in October. In fact, just is past October. And it is wonderful. They also, the friends of the High Line, provide a map that will tell you all of the various places where there are sculptures so that you don't miss that, so you can have some little photo opportunities. So that's also kind of a, a really nice thing, besides all of the, the natural plants and everything. And also, you, when you're walking along, you'll see these water towers that a lot of the buildings have like the apartment buildings that they use to provide the water for the apartment buildings which i think is kind of unusual mm. to see and then the very best thing is going to the whitney museum which depending on where you start the high line it would either be at the end or the or the beginning of the high line but that is a fabulous museum very small uh... very a lot of different exhibits that are offered, uh, you know, changing over, over through the, the year. And it's really, it's a very nice museum to go to. But I highly recommend anyone going to New York, taking the time to walk the High Line.
0: You know, that's a great idea. If you're going to take a one-and-a-half-mile hike, it's good to know what other sites are nearby. And, yes. and as Katie was giving us that little, uh, beautiful guided tour of the High Line Park, I was thinking, the tour guide in me was thinking, I hope there's information there so people can understand what they're looking at. It sounds like yes. you picked up yeah. some there's map. Yeah, a that, map.
5: That you can get uh, at various stops because there there's a lot of points where you could either take either a staircase to to go up onto the high line or there are there's a couple places that are elevators. So it is, you know, handicap friendly. I guess you would say.
0: And it gives you a great perspective on uh, New York you wouldn't get by staying on at ground level
5: those water towers, I thought that was quite interesting, mm-hmm. and because they provide the water. They're actually built of wood, and they're on top mm-hmm. of a lot of the apartment buildings, and they provide the water to you know, the big apartment complexes.
2: Uh, I love your point about the art, because the art program is very important to us. We take great pride in it. There's a different theme to show every year, and people do come again and again to see the art. They also come for programs. We have a lot of programs for the community. Really, it's, it's a
0: wonderful place to go. I would imagine part of the Friends of the High Line uh, mission would be to keep things uh, changing so that locals have reason to visit repeatedly.
2: Right. And even the seasons out, Pam, wouldn't you agree, give you a very different feeling?
5: like i said i have been there in the spring and then most recently in october more of the fall and so the plants are different uh the look of the city you know just as you're walking along is is much different and there's always both times there have been lots of people both locals it appears locals and tourists that are doing the walk
0: all right hey pam thanks so much for uh, thank sharing you. yeah yeah thank you very much take care bye now all right bye Katie, this has been so fun talking about New York's High Line. Let's just wrap it up with a special memory you've you've had from from the High Line Park. Uh, how about the first time you were ever on it?
2: That's a very special memory. Our son was turning 13 that weekend, and as his birthday present, we went downtown to live as tourists. We went to a hotel for two nights, and we explored downtown. A friend of us told us about this unused rail yard where plants were growing up and what they were going to do. But it was in the early stages. And we met Robert Hammond. I didn't know what we were going to see. And suddenly we were walking on this rail yard with beautiful stray kinds of exotic plants around that had just self-seeded these wide open views. And it was a very sweet time for the family. And, you know, what really made me excited about the High Line. One thing I love about the High Line is the story of how those two men made it happen.
0: And then you can go there with your with your child and enjoy a chance Absolutely. to celebrate that Absolutely.
2: But if it weren't for our son, I'm not so sure that I would ever be involved.
0: That's great. Katie Maron. thanks so much, and uh, best wishes with your work.
2: Thank you very much, Rick. First, we take Manhattan. Then we take balloons.
0: You can listen to Katie Maron's earlier appearance on Travel with Rick Steves where she talks about the value of public green spaces and how they help to define great cities around the world. Look for program number 482 from April 2017 in our program archives at ricksteves.com slash radio. Tell us what inspires you from your travels in the form of a haiku poem. There's a link for sending us your original travel haiku in the radio section of ricksteves.com. Here are a few examples from our listeners that we thought you might enjoy.
2: Paul Smith of Greensboro, North Carolina, crafted these haiku after hiking at Hanging Rock State Park. Swelter, silly pines, melt into snapshot vistas, local maximum. Black racer, smooth snake, skims past shoes toward crisp oak leaves, fear in underbrush. And Karen Miller from Fernandina Beach, Florida, wrote us this haiku while camping out in a mountaintop meadow in Virginia on a hike of the Appalachian Trail.
1: Honeysuckle Day. A kiss on a hilltop waits. Will you walk with me?
0: It has old-world scenery, high-powered cities, and important anniversaries this year that are worth including in your travel plans. Tour guides from Berlin join us in just a minute to take your calls at 877-333-7425 as they help you to fine-tune your itineraries for Germany this year. That's next on Travel with Rick Steves. The most populous country in the European Union is also home to many of Europe's most high-powered sites and one of Europe's most envied economies. From mountains and forests to old-world farm towns, riverside castles, and dynamic cities, there are plenty of reasons to visit Germany. Macy Hitchcock, Carolina Marburger, and Holger Zimmer are all German tour guides. They join us now in our studio to take your calls and give you a little update on what you can enjoy this year in Germany. Holger, Carolina, Macy, danke Shane, for being here. How's How the right German? <laughs> Thanks a lot for being here. And let's talk about Germany right now. First of all, Europeans seem to love to celebrate anniversaries. And uh, in Germany, there's lots of anniversaries going on. 2018, what's that mean, Macy?
6: Well, one thing it means is it's the 200th anniversary of the birth of a Karl Marx, who was the godfather of socialism, a political thinker, economist, and he was born in 1818, and he basically wrote the Communist Manifesto in 1848, so it's the time of all the revolutions across Europe, people reacting to terrible working conditions uh, due to rapid industrialization. Uh, he lived in England, saw the terrible working conditions uh, people were living in there. And his idea was, as long as uh, you have this kind of fight between uh, the working class or the working class being exploited by the exploiters, the business bourgeoisie industrialists, uh, you'll always have some kind of conflict going on and that will eventually lead to a revolution and socialism. Uh, I just got to say, the the way
0: you're talking makes the average American just want to crawl under the the table and put their hands on their head, you know, (laughs) because we have this red scare heritage and we can't even think in terms of class warfare and proletariat and so yes. on. But I just think it's so important when we go to Europe to recognize this is the birth pains of the modern world for dignity for workers and so on. And when you go to Europe, you're not celebrating Stalin when you recognize how Karl Marx contributed to the evolution of our free societies, I think.
6: Absolutely, and we mustn't forget that he was around long before the people who did things in his name. So, for example, Lenin, Stalin, uh, you know, Mao Zedong, all these people who are quoting Marx and right. you know, living by what they called Marxist doctrines, it was their interpretations of Marx's ideas.
0: So you see Marx right up there with Lenin and Stalin on these big three and so on, and Marx wasn't there to actually join the club. No. They just invited him. And if you go to Trier, that's one of the most uh, underrated cities
4: in Germany, I think. Uh, what might you see in Trier, Holger? Well, that is the birthplace of Karl Marx. And now they're celebrating a big time with a huge exhibition on the life and times of Karl Marx, really to understand that there's thinking coming from somewhere. There's roots to the idea that we have to actually recognize the needs of the workers. Okay. And what else happened uh, on an anniversary in 2018? Carolina?
3: Well, we basically fold two anniversaries in one to a certain degree because, of course, it's 1618, years ago that the horrible Thirty Years' War started, and 1918 is when the First World War ended. Oh, my goodness. I hadn't put that
0: together because a lot of people call the religious wars, the mm -hmm. Reformation and Martin Luther kicked off, the First World War because it involved almost all the nations, in in Europe anyways, and, what, a third of Germany was killed in that Hundred Year War. So, 400 years ago, the the Thirty Years' War started, Mm -hmm. ending on a little bit of a happy note, and 30 years later, Mm -hmm. and then the horrific 1918, end of World War I, which left Germany in such a disillusionment where a uh, nutcase like Hitler could sort mm-hmm. of capitalize on all that need for jobs and anger and stab in the back. Why did we not fight to the end sort of feeling and and take Germany down an even more uh, difficult road. Also, 50 years ago, we have these uh, student rebellions all over Europe. What happened, Macy, in 1968?
6: You basically have a culmination of years of the post-war generation. Their parents didn't talk about the war. It was swept under the carpet. There was a lot of dissatisfaction. Not being able to talk about what mum or, let's say, rather dad did or granddad did, more like dad did it during the war. Coupled with kind of across the whole of Europe, there was a kind of student uprisings due to basically people being just dissatisfied. And essentially in Germany, the '68 generation kind of produced, uh, let's say, people like the Bader meinhof gang, or they were around the same time. Uh, and it was all really a reaction. I'd say it was like a, a reaction to a kind of pressure cooker situation of just not being able to talk about the work and also a reaction to the way German governments have been formed post-war, where you'd have former Nazis in government positions. You'd also have people who've been working as doctors during the Nazi era, just carrying on as normal and no one talking about it. So
0: this, the better meinhof Um, gang was uh, sort of domestic terrorism. A lot of
6: it's a reaction to that. And also looking to the East, not living in the East, but looking to the East and thinking everything's great out in the the East, not really knowing what was really going on and being very idealistic about communism because for them, capitalism was a failure. Capitalism was leading nowhere. that absorbed Nazis. So you you have this...
0: Very unusual situation where for as long as Uncle Helmut was still alive, it was awkward to talk about what he did as a Nazi secret
4: policeman or something like that. And in '68, the younger generation is saying, we've got to deal with our past, huh, Holger? It's a crucial date for, like, nowadays German history as well, because that is really, as Macy rightly said, the first time this generation spoke up and asked the questions and then said, so why are these old Nazis still at the helm? Why are they still in the government or in, so in we, the courthouses? We, we
0: had tumult on our streets in 1968 here in the United States right, and in yeah. Europe. All sorts of things were happening as this younger generation was coming into awareness, coming into adulthood and and asking hard questions.
4: And I think this really kicked off something that is still visible today in a way that, you know, Germany with its, you know, really gruesome and, and dark history of like annihilation and, and, you know, trying to dominate the world again and again. And nowadays we really try to address this. So we we do teach this in schools. We go to the former campsites and ask the questions and to look back and not to forget. And I think that really that started in 1968.
0: And you see that. I, I remember even in my earlier days of traveling, which was after 68, you know, the whole Hitler thing was not talked about very much. And now you've got these documentation centers that very courageously deal in a frank and candid learning way about what happened. It's interesting you say that Germany is sort of reluctant to be in a dominant position now as it wanted to be back then. On the other hand, Germany finds itself in a leadership role in Europe. And because of our reluctance to play ball with the rest of the world, Germany is kind of inheriting a leadership role that maybe it's not asking for. Carolina, what's that like?
3: Well, I definitely think it's not asking for it. But of course, the mere economic weight, the population weight within Europe makes it basically obvious to be chosen to at least looked at but i think it's very important for our current chancellor but i think for anyone that would be in that position to play on at least bilateral and multilateral connections and to make sure that europe doesn't get disrupted yet again
0: i would think if i was living in some chaotic corner of europe i would look to germany as the adult in the room
3: yes it was actually it was the big change though i remember that was some about a decade ago when a polish foreign minister in the Euro crisis basically said, I would love Germany to take the lead, and that for Polish. The Polish the prime most... minister said, Germany, take the lead. Yes, you know, that's a revolutionary that's, development. That basically. speaks volumes. Yes, I heard that. I was very moved. by Now, like, Germany,
0: Germany did come. take the lead in refugees. That, I believe, is causing a little fallout for your government. What is the current
4: refugee situation in Germany, and would that have any impact on travelers? I don't know about travelers, but for sure it has an impact on Germany, on how because the society is doing. a reality, there
0: are lower class German workers that are challenged by this, aren't they? Yeah,
4: that's one thing, but I think one big thing is, let's face it, we have about 1 to 1. 1.2 million people coming in from a different culture, different language, different background, and now they're there and they want to stay there in Germany, you know, understandably so. We have to see, like, how does it work with education? How does it work with training? Are there jobs for someone? And I think it really that causes concern. I think that's so what we're we, not almost, not just Germany, but all of Europe is facing the you're same. You're almost thing. being compassionate
0: first and thinking about the practical fallout second, which is quite a noble thing to do I think but you have to be realistic also it's an interesting thing to pay attention to this is Travel with Rick Steves we're talking about what's going on in Germany in 2018 we're joined by Holger Zimmer Carolina Marburger and Macy Hitchcock our phone number is 877-333-7425 and Claire's calling from Vancouver in British Columbia Claire thanks for calling
7: thanks for having me I've got a question so I've been to Germany a number of times and most of my trips I try and incorporate some time hiking so I've been around Berchtesgaden a few times, Saxon, Switzerland, Bodensee, and most recently the Black Forest, and had an amazing time everywhere. I'm kind of looking for some recommendations for maybe some perhaps lesser-known towns or cities to use as a base for future adventures. I, I travel alone a lot, and I'm dependent on public transportation, so just looking for any ideas that your guests may have about that.
0: Now, first of all, that's so interesting, Claire, the places that you've gone already. You've talked about the Bodensee, the Black Forest... Where else did you go? Berchtesgarten?
7: Berchtesgarten and Saxon, Switzerland, yes. The, uh, the national park just outside Dresden, kind of heading towards the Czech Republic. Oh, that's
0: right. So it's, called, it's sort of like the, quote, Switzerland of Saxony. Then you'd go there as a side trip from Dresden. I've heard that's nice. I'm just uh, curious about, our, with our guests here, Claire went to uh, Berchtesgarten. The sort of in a lot of ways the, the heartland of Germany or, or at least some people's vision of Germany. What, <laughs> what is the German thing about Berchtesgarten, Carolina?
3: Well, it is on the very corner of Germany, so but Bavarians might think so, yes. yes. Um, well, Garden, of course, uh, has a very... Let's it's say got an, difficult, it's difficult. It's got an association, because Hitler of course was... it is the oh, the eagle's nest is up there on the on the mountain. But of course you also have the beautiful King's Lake that it overlooks. And there's this beautiful boat ride that you can take on Königssee to the San Balotolomeo cute little church. But
0: wasn't there a little propaganda value for Hitler to go there and, and talk about his philosophy because it's sort of there's something deep down. They sold it. Yes,
3: I mean, of course, it was It was the, what we call Heimat was allegedly all these kind of mountains that everyone forgot about the North North <laughs> Sea. Everyone sort of suddenly thought only mountaintops are the perfect impersonation of right? German culture. But, but, you uh, yeah. know,
0: because I think related to that, because of World War II, the United States got Bavaria. Exactly. And the American image of Germany, consequently, is not the North, but it's the South. So we always think Lederhosen and, and yeah. you know, slap dancing Holger.
4: Yeah, so Claire, really, I would recommend... Go up north. Go to Hamburg. Go to Wismar. Go to Rostock. Ostalzone, the wonderful small place at the Baltic Sea, and the north has a complete different feel to it for know? hiking, for, for for outdoors. Yeah, outdoors. Yeah, you would go like maybe kayaking more mm-hmm. than hiking. It's all flat, so there's not mm-hmm. much of a you know hiking up and down the mountains there. But it's an amazing you know Hamburg is a bustling city with a great maritime history where you mm-hmm. can see that, and there's a river flowing by it. So, I mean, the sound of seagulls in a city that always makes me like want to go there. Oh yeah. Macy, any suggestions um, for Claire? I would
6: say a nice place for her to go is, again, north but eastwards is Muritz, which is a very big uh, lake area. Or There's a lake itself called Muritz in an underpopulated state called uh, Mecklenburg-Vorpommern, which is very kind of flat again. But it's great in summer because there's so many lakes. There's thousands of lakes. So she'd oh. take her swimming gear with her and have lots of swims and hike all the way around those. And it's peaceful, lots of transportation, and really, I think, under, under-visited
0: now you're all Berliners and Berlin is kind of a land as well as a city. If you want to just take a little nature-loving break from the city and you want to be home for dinner, where do you go?
6: I'd go out into and most of us probably go out into Brandenburg, which is the surrounding state uh which basically envelops Berlin and you can get out there really easily if you've got a day pass. Yeah, you know, if you get out of zones a zones ABC card, you can get out into Brandenburg. Maybe could take a bike with you, you could rent a bike, take that on the train with you, the S-Bahn, the mm-hmm. regional train, and then cycle out there from there, and there's countless places to go.
0: There you go, Claire. I hope that's some, some help for you.
6: That's great. Thank you so much.
0: Thanks for your call. And Cynthia is calling from Dalton in Georgia. Hi, Cynthia.
7: Hi, Rick. How are you?
0: Great. We're having fun dreaming about Germany here. Have you been to Germany lately?
7: Oh, I have been fortunate enough to go, but it has been many years. It's actually been 22 years and I got to go to Nuremberg and Munich with a gentleman who was actually born inside the walls of Auschwitz.
0: Oh, my goodness. And lived
7: there till he was four. So it was a very profound trip. And I fell madly in love with the, the beauty of both cities. And the Glockenspiels were just incredible. We actually took a day trip to Zurich, Switzerland, and had a wonderful, wonderful time there. And... My dream trip of my life has been to go to the Black Forest. I would love to see the Gothic architecture and to learn more of the folklore and legends of the area.
0: So the Black Forest, I mean, there's a great Gothic church in in Freiburg uh, in the Black Forest. The great thing to do in Black Forest, I think, is to commune with nature. I was just driving down the Schwarzwald Hochstrasse, the Black Forest High Road, The Black Forest is called the Black Forest because it's so dense and there's gorgeous lakes there and frankly they're kind of German family tourist traps but in a delightful way and you just park your car and everybody's out there you know having the equivalent of uh, cotton candy and hamburgers and so on but German style and it's just great. Macy, can you talk a little bit about a family vacation in the Black Forest?
6: I know most about the Black Forest as a cross-country skiing resort more than anything. Mm. The kind of mountains in, in the Black Forest are relatively low compared to those in the Alps. Mm. So people, they'll do cross-country skiing and you even have artificial snow there as well. And there's a few little resorts there. And it's very popular with Germans for cross-country skiing because it's, it's affordable for them. It's very easy to get there.
0: You know, I was just hiking and you've got these beautiful onion domes and little hamlets, farms and uh, it's all grassy fields. But I can imagine when there's snow, that would be delightful and you'd see the onion domes. In the yeah, distance. and a
6: lot of incredible wildlife there as well that's worth looking out for. I have one more quick question. Yeah. Are there any amazing castles
7: that I would want to try to book a, a night or two in in the Black Forest area?
0: You mean to actually sleep in?
7: Well, even to visit would be fine. I've just I've never yeah. been to the area at all, but I've heard that there's these magnificent castles.
0: I don't know if there's any castles that you'd want to sleep
4: in, but there's a lot of castles to visit. And ruins uh, are fine too. Ruins are fine too. Obviously <laughs> nice. vegan <laughs> a ruin. Yeah. yeah. I think though like to be honest castle wise you know there's loads like in Bavaria there's loads on the Rhine the Black Forest it doesn't is, have a... as as Macy said it's a nature area it's a rural area right. with very little people. It's like a hard life uh, a king wouldn't want to build a castle where you, you can't hardly survive in the winter. In fact I understand the
0: Black Forest Highstrasse was only built during the fascist times in the 1930s until then there was no road going across it. So if you're looking for a castle in Germany, I do like that question. My vote for the best castle would be Burg Eltz because you can go in and see the interior and the Eltz family still lives there. It's near the town of Kokum on the Mosel River. Do you guys have any other castles that you would say are less famous than Neuschwanstein or not one of the ruined castles on the Rhine that travelers should know But Carolina?
3: My favorite, for good reason, is the Moritzburg uh, close to Dresden beautiful water castle, and we particularly dream about it because some really famous Christmas film was shot there back in the day ah, in the 70s, so and it's a really, really beautiful. It's not that much to see inside, but it's just beautifully um, did you, did you
0: located. Say, did you say a water castle? It's a water castle, yes. Well, what does a water castle mean? So,
3: oh, I mean it's, a, it's surrounded by water in an artificial
0: lake. This is fun, water castles, yes. because I always remember what Heron Kimsey is a palace yes. on the lake yes. in Kimsey When you drive from Munich to Salzburg, and of course, the famous water castle on the Rhine would be uh, Falls on a little rock, right oh, in the Kuchen, middle of the river. Kuchen, yeah. and, that's uh, true. Yeah, it
7: sounds wonderful. It sounds magnificent.
0: All right, thanks for your call.
7: Thank you. I've enjoyed it. Thank you all. Bye Goodbye. Now.
0: Our guides to Germany today on Travel with Rick Steves are Holger Zimmer, Carolina Marburger, and Macy Hitchcock, who moved to Berlin from Britain several years ago. When they're not leading tours, Macy also co-hosts an English-language podcast with news about Berlin called Radio Spätkauf. Holger is a journalist and arts producer at RBB Kulturradio and at the ARD Network in Berlin. And Carolina writes about Berlin history at berlinlocals.com. We have links to our guests with this week's show notes at ricksteves.com radio. I'd just like to close by having you share one angle on your country that makes you proud to welcome travellers.
6: Do you know what? It's probably an obvious one, but as a, an expat or an international living in, in Germany with German roots, I would like to mention, I really like the inclusiveness of Germany. The refugee crisis really showed me another side of Germany, <laughs> uh, and I'm, I'm really impressed. Whatever people say about Merkel... Whether she made a mistake or not, I don't know, without Mm. consulting everybody before she did it. But I think opening the doors to refugees, Mm. and
3: that for me is really another side of Germany that's opened up
6: recently
4: to me. Carolina?
3: Um, I think it is the varieties, the federal past, uh, like the many, many cultures coming together that now we call Germany. But basically that every single region is so distinct because it has a long... History of its own by itself, and therefore it's so complex. And, and I love that to so the federal tradition. Th- and
0: to celebrate that good-natured pride, you mm-hmm. know, um, Franconia, oh yeah, you
4: know, yes. uh, pressure, because and it's, a, it's a
3: happy one. It's not. It's not a good. one that tries to superpose anyone. That's a nice one.
0: And Holger.
4: And I think for me, it's really this mix of old and new, and especially when I think I'm a music lover, when it comes to like the old masters, we think of Beethoven and Bach and Brahms, you know, that's German classical tradition. That's still alive, but on the other hand, you also have young bands, new music being played, electronic, indie, whatever, in clubs, and not just like in the big cities, but also the smaller villages have a vibrant music culture, and I think this is something that I really cherish in Germany. Wow.
0: Holger Zimmer, Carolina Marburger, Macy Hitchcock. I would be delighted to travel through your country with each of you. Thank you so much, and happy travels. Oh, thank very. you. Travel with Rick Steves is produced by Tim Tatton, Sarah McCormick, and Isaac kaplan Wolner at Rick Steves Europe in Edmonds, Washington. Special thanks to Gretchen Strout for reading this week's listener travel haiku. We also had help from the crew at the Radio Foundation in New York City this week. You can send us your own original travel haiku, Listen to the show again whenever you like, and find out about our
4: guests. Look for the radio pages of ricksteves.com.
2: Rick Steves has spent a third of his adult life in Europe researching and writing guidebooks. At Rick Steves' online travel store, you'll find guidebooks and phrasebooks for Germany, Austria, Switzerland, plus the Low Countries, and nearly every other corner of Europe. Learn more at ricksteves.com.